The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. You take your uh, Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 1 and read through verse 18. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least to you I am, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brother of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it, or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I've used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, or involuntarily, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel." Well, last week we started this passage, and uh, verses 1 through 14 really is not uh, an overly familiar passage. You can imagine it's probably not a text that preachers typically pick to preach from. There are different challenges and difficulties. For instance, the connection to chapter 8 is not readily apparent. And so last week, if you were here, you know that we painstakingly, and I do use that word on purpose, painstakingly worked our way through the passage. Afterwards, of course, whenever we do anything that's painstaking, I usually regret it. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to review very quickly. We we will not do a painstaking review. And uh, then we'll wrap up with verses 13 and 14, which is where we left off, and then we move in 
to the next paragraph. So let me just just paint the picture very briefly. Chapter 8, Paul has been talking about really, uh, for the sake of love, giving up the rights or liberties that we have so that we don't cause a brother to stumble. We covered that passage in detail. And then he gets to chapter 9. And the question is, what is he doing in chapter 9? And I think that what Paul is doing in chapter 9 is he's continuing the very same theme, but what he's doing is he's using himself as an example. right? So he has argued that the Corinthians should stop using their so-called rights, which was hurting other Christians, but for the sake of love, give those up. Now, what he does in the first 14 verses is he demonstrates clearly that he has certain freedoms and rights as one who proclaims the gospel. In fact, 9, 1 to 14, Paul is building a case, a, a detailed case, that he has the right to make a living from preaching the gospel. In other words, he has a right to monetary or financial support. And so that's verses 1 through 14. But the crux of what he is going to do is after building that case, he's going to turn around and say, but I don't use that right. So 14 verses to prove that he has the right to turn around and say, I don't use that right, all right? So, um, Paul's freedom and rights, he asks these four rhetorical questions. Don't we have a right to do this, right to do that? And the answer, of course, is expecting a yes. Well, of course you do. Of course you have a right. So what what he's doing is he's reminding the Corinthians of his authority as an apostle, his high calling as an apostle, but he's not doing it to beat them over the head with his authority. What he's doing is he is establishing or reestablishing these things in their minds because this is how he's going to illustrate the importance of giving up your rights for others. All right? So he goes on and he argues um, strenuously in 3 to 14 that... Um, we have a right, in fact, he asks these questions, do we not have a right to? And, of course, the idea is, well, of course you have the right. And then in verse 6, he sort of makes, um, it, it borders on sarcasm, actually. He says, in a sense, so is what you're saying is only Barnabas and I are the only ones that have to work for our support? And the answer is, of course, that's, that's not true. And then he turns around and he illustrates from the realm of nature. So he talks about soldiers and he talks about farmers and he talks about shepherds. And of course, the point in all three of those illustrations is if you're a soldier and you're serving in the army, you don't have to bring your own rations and provisions. They're given for you because of your service. If you are a farmer and have a vineyard, you actually have every right to partake of the grapes that you end up having. Uh, if you are a shepherd, you have the right to, um, to partake of the milk. In other words, if this is your realm in, in which you 
uh, serve and your realm of work, you have every right to, uh, to expect your subsistence to come from the realm in which you work. So if you're uh, an engineer, you have every right to expect that if you give your engineering services to somebody, that you have a right to actually receive subsistence for that, right? This is just common sense. Then Paul does something that is really wonderful. He uses Scripture as an illustration and, of course, uses oxen. Now, I, my, my temptation is to talk a lot about how in the world Paul uses this text, right? In fact, what's fascinating is there has been a ton written on how Paul uses this Old Testament text that doesn't even focus on his point in using the text, all right? But he says, so we not only know this from... Um, from nature, from soldiers and farmers and shepherds, um, but we also know this from Scripture, because doesn't the Old Testament, doesn't the law of Moses say, don't muzzle the ox while it's threshing? So you can't help but to draw the most amazing comparison between ministers of the gospel and oxen. And then Paul asks a question that disturbs animal lovers everywhere. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Now, the answer to that is trickier than, may, than meets the eye because in one sense the answer is, well, of course he's concerned about oxen because that's why it's in Deuteronomy 25 to begin with. And by the way, in the Proverbs it says that a righteous man actually takes care of his animals, right? And so uh, does he care about oxen? And the answer is yes, but... By telling us this principle in the context, by the way, of taking care of people, he's talking more about a bigger principle than just applies to farm animals. And so the principle is actually quite clear, and that is, while the ox is doing its work, yoked and threshing the wheat, kind of going around probably in a circle, and it's driving that millstone, whatever is falling onto the ground. That ox has every right to eat from the fruit of his labors, and God's talking about us. All right? So then, verses 11 and 12 are crucial because this is where Paul actually then sets forth the principle. He's making the argument, making the argument, making the argument. Principle, verses 11 and 12. So if we sowed spiritual things to you, that is, we preached the gospel to you, we taught you the word, is it actually too much that we would reap material things from you? Right. So then he says in verse 12, so if others share the right over you, that is the right to receive support for their labors, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we'll cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So in this, um, in verses 11 and 12, Paul is, um, in a sense, summarizing the principle that he states in other places. For instance, 
Galatians 6.6, let those who are taught the word share all good things with those who teach them the word, right? This is um, 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who labor in the word and doctrine are worthy of double honor, Almost every commentator I've ever seen thinks double honor is in reference to remuneration for their labors in the word and doctrine. And so Paul is basically saying, listen, um, other people come along, preach, take an offering, get their, um, in a sense, support from you. If other people do that, I don't know exactly who the other people would have been, Don't we, in this case, Paul and Barnabas, don't we even have more of a right, Paul, because he's their spiritual father. Although you have many tutors in Christ, you only have one father, Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, just by way of reminder, Paul had labored among the Corinthians, oftentimes in a state of privation. He often labored with his needs barely being met. He makes reference to that in in both 1 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 11. But here's the big question, and this is the sort of where we left off last week. Why would Paul see um, receiving support from the Corinthians as a hindrance to the gospel? Now, let's just make this abundantly clear. Paul did receive support from other churches. In fact, he's going to make an allusion to this later in our passage. um, But when he was in Corinth, he didn't. What's interesting is that Corinth, as as a commercial city with two ports, would have probably been a a very well-to-do city. But Paul never made use of his right to receive support for preaching the gospel. And I think that the background that helps us is that the Corinthians would have been very, very steeped in uh, a background of patronage. So the idea is that you would have a patron or a a benefactor who would um, basically take upon himself... Uh, oftentimes a philosopher or a rhetorician's support. And in those contexts, that person that was the benefactor or the patron had a certain amount of influence over that person, could claim a certain level of friendship with that person, could exert a certain level of control over that person. And my, my hunch is that Paul did not actually trust the Corinthians enough in light of that background and, and baggage to actually take anything from them for his support because he knew that such support would end up being a hindrance for the gospel in that particular context But there's also something else, and that is, when the Apostle Paul ministered, he ministered in such a way that nobody could ever accuse him of doing what he did for monetary gain. 
So in one sense, you have somewhat the narrower principle of wanting to avoid the patronage or being um, the beneficiary of, uh, let's say, a small handful of people's um, generosity that would come with what? What's our expression? Strings attached, right? So Paul says, I wasn't going to hinder the gospel by taking money from you because I knew with you there'd be strings attached, but then also... I never want people to think that what I do, I do because of money. So, verses 13 and 14, which is where we left off, Paul then reiterates the principle. And he does this in a way that is, that is pretty interesting. He says, verse 13, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple. Those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. Who's he talking about in verse 13? The priests, right? Very clearly, he's talking about the priesthood. And there was um, built into Israel's law and Israel's system of worship the fact that that those who ministered in the tabernacle and later in the temple, those who labored or ministered at the altar, those who were Levites, those who belonged to the Aaronic priesthood. Remember, they didn't have an inheritance in the land. Levi didn't get an inheritance, which we'll talk about this Sunday as we think of Joseph's or Jacob's prophecies to his sons. The Lord was their inheritance. That's what he told them, right? So they didn't get an inheritance. So they were dependent on on what? Actually, on making a living from the provisions that were brought to the temple. So there were laws regarding sacrifice because some of that meat had to go to the priests. And in fact, corrupt priests like Eli's sons wouldn't offer up the meat and the fat, they'd keep it for themselves, right? And so Paul says, under the old covenant, priests actually were supported not only by what was brought into the temple, but also by Israel's tithes. Israel actually had three tithes. Two of them were annual tithes. One was spread over three years. The one that spread over three years was for the sake of, of provision for the, uh, the temple, But the other tithe was actually for the support of the Levites. And so the children of Israel actually brought their tithe to help support the priesthood. And so Paul says, that's how they did it in the Old Testament. Now notice what he says in verse 14. So also in the same way or likewise, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So what Paul's saying is there was an Old Testament pattern for the support of those that labored in ministry, i.e. the priesthood, and there's a New Testament pattern that actually parallels it. And so Jesus, when he says our Lord is commanded, probably has in mind a couple passages in Luke, Luke 9 and Luke 10, where Jesus actually says that the labor is worthy of his wages. And so uh, uh, what Paul is doing now is, is he has established what the Corinthians really already knew, and that was he had a right to their financial support. But he has also stated now that he has voluntarily 
waived his right to that support so that the gospel would not be hindered. What motivates Paul to make sure the gospel's not hindered? Love. It's that simple. Love. And what he wants the Corinthians to do is he wants the Corinthians to look at what he's doing and to imitate that same behavior in reference to their brothers and sisters. Right? You know, it's very probable that the Corinthians didn't get it. I say that for two reasons. One is 2 Corinthians. <laughs> but the other is Clement of Rome, who lives in the early post-apostolic period, writes a letter to the Corinthians. I believe, my memory serves me correctly, 45 chapters long. The date of Clement's letter is A.D. 95. So that means that this is probably four and a half decades after Paul writes this. And do you know what Clement has to deal with? The same exact Why do you think it is so hard for God's people to do what's right in regards to God's people? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's such a discouraging thing at times, right? Because we, we're, we're all about... Um, doctrinal accuracy, and we're all about theological precision and wanting to make sure we cross our T's and dot our I's, and we're all about domestic piety, and I mean, we're going to have a Puritan conference on family wisdom from the Puritans. We love this kind of stuff, how husbands should act and how wives should act and how children should act, and, 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 and we care about stuff like what our worship is like, and we care about um, we care about church order, we care about church membership, we care about church polity, we care about uh, we care about missions, and we care about evangelism. And you know what usually is low man on the totem pole for our priorities is how we treat each other. That should be at the top. And so often it just gets kicked down the road. So are you premillennial or amillennial? Or better yet, are you infralapsarian or supralapsarian? And Paul would say, do you love each other? Do you do what you do because you love each other? 
Or do you do what you do because you think you got the right to do it? Right? Well, Paul's not done. He's got a long way to go, all right? And so when we get to verse 15, notice what happens. Paul just reiterates what he's already said back up in, um, in verses 11 and 12. He says, but I have used none of these things, right? I, and I have not made use of any of these things. That is any of these rights. In the text, the I, first person pronoun, is absolutely emphatic so that it's something like I myself or I, for my part, have not used any of these rights. That is, any of these rights to receive support. And then Paul says, you know when you're having a conversation with somebody and you know that person really well and you start saying things because you are preempting what you know they're going to say? And all the husbands and wives said, amen and amen, right? I know what she's going to say, right? I know what he's going to say. Paul knows what the Corinthians are going to say. So he says, I have not used any of these rights. And by the way, I'm not writing that in order that I might start using the rights. You see what he says? (laughs) He's turns around and he says, I've not written these things in order that it might be done to me. In other words, I'm not using some sort of reverse psychology. I'm not saying I'm not going to use any of these rights so that you'll turn around and say, no, Paul, really, please take our money. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to exploit you. This is not some backdoor attempt to get you to pass the plate. I mean, you know people that do that kind of manipulation, right? No, no, that's okay. No, you know, that's... I'll tell you what, going to lunch with people is often an interesting thing, right? Here, let me get lunch. No, 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 that's okay. I got it. Okay. Right? So, so, you know, if you don't mean it, don't say it, right? Right? And so... Jason does this to me all the time. Or, you know, I left my wallet at the office or whatever. But, but Paul just knows. Paul knows. You know what? You guys are so perverse. You probably think I'm saying this as some sort of backhanded reverse psychology to get you to take an offering. And I'm not. In fact, then what Paul does, and this is absolutely fantastic. The Greek class on Tuesdays can testify how marvelous this is. Paul turns around and he says, for it would be better for me rather to die. And then he doesn't finish the sentence. Now, you have the New American Standard or the ESV, they finish the sentence for you. And uh, what I want to say is what they end up doing is they end up uh, ruining the power of the rhetoric. Okay? So what Paul says is literally, for it is better for me rather to die than, you know, he just doesn't get the rest of it out. 
He stops mid-sentence. There are fancy words describing this rhetorical device that we won't get into, but that's what he does. And so, as a parent, you know exactly this figure of speech, even though you may not know how to spell it. You start that sentence, and it is... Chad's grinning, you know exactly, right? So... You, 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 there's, there's just, let's just say there's a lot of emotion in it. And as that sentence is coming out, you have enough, you have a modicum of self-control in order to stop it before it comes all the way out. The Net Bible does it right. He says, in fact, it would be better for me to die than Dash. It's awesome. Strong emotion here. If he were to finish the sentence, I think it would have been finished like this. Of course, he doesn't. It would be better for me to die than to take a dollar from you. I'd rather die than to be able for you people to say, look at what we did for Paul. Okay? And so there is tremendous amount of energy, tremendous amount of emotion. And so Paul breaks off his thought and then gives this emphatic declaration that sounds a little weird to us. He says, no one is going to empty me of this boast. One of the things I love about Paul is that you have a magnificent integration of the power of a logical mind and the power of a full-throttled emotional heart, both of them coming together. And so Paul here, there is emotion as he is writing this, and he says in this very striking statement, no one shall empty this boast of mine. Well, boast almost never sounds good to us, right? Somebody puts up on Facebook the other day, hey, I got my taxes done. I write, braggart. Okay, right? (laughs) Just boasting about the fact that we wait until April 14th. Okay. So boast doesn't usually sound good. But in Paul, guess what? Boasting is often good. And the reason is, is because you can use the word boast to convey the idea of a a robust expression of praise to God, which is rooted in the Old Testament. Let him who boasts, boast of this, that he knows me. 
By the way, Paul has used this very kind of boasting back at the end of chapter 1. In fact, just, just keep your finger there and just turn back to chapter 1 at the very end. And, and you can actually see the two ways that Paul uses the word boast. One's negative, one's positive. So 127, Paul says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God had chosen. God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So you know what Paul's saying is, is that God in free and sovereign and electing grace does what he does so that nobody can boast about it. So God chooses the weak. God chooses the things which are not. God chooses the, um, the, that which is the um, uh, um, unimpressive And he does all of that to do what? To put his grace and his glory on display so that it completely undermines anybody's ability to boast. So then he turns around in verse 30, but of him by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, God's grace as free, sovereign, unconditional grace is all about God's glory and nobody can say, Um, I praise me because I'm so smart that I chose Christ, or I praise me that I'm so um, insightful that I embrace the gospel. There's There's no difference between you or me and our unbelieving neighbor except this, the free grace of God. That's all. And if that's true, then there's no ground for boasting for us at all. Right? None. And then Paul turns around and he's echoing Jeremiah 9. And he says, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So there is one kind of boasting that grace obliterates. And there's another kind of boasting that grace elicits. So that our boast is not in ourselves. Our boast is in God who has done all for us. So when Paul turns around and he says in chapter 9, verse 15, no one is going to empty me of this boast, the question is, what boast is Paul talking about? Now, he understands that he is, he's traveling into some water here that he could easily be misunderstood, and he'll clarify it in a second, but notice the idea is, is that Paul's boast here is in the, in the God-given ability to preach the gospel of Christ 
with no strings attached to those who hear so that they can hear of the love of God in Christ and be reconciled to God. And Paul says, the fact that I've freely received and turn around and freely give, I glory in that. That's my boast. And I'm not going to let you Corinthians suck that pleasure from me. I'm not going to let you empty me of the ability to be able to boast about what God has put on me and does through me. The Corinthians are so corrupt, they would probably think if they were, in fact, responsible for Paul's support, they would probably start taking credit for what God was doing through Paul. Does the work of the ministry depend upon the support of God's people? Of course it does. Think of life choices. What would happen if nobody gave to life choices? They wouldn't be able to do the work, right? But in God's economy, their glory is not their donors nor their volunteers, but what God does freely through them. That's that's where God's glory shines. To be able to partner or participate is just a privilege, right? Just a privilege. That's all it is. God is the one that does the work. So how ridiculous would it be for people to say, you know what, because I gave money, I'm the one that saved the babies. That'd be blasphemy, right? Be blasphemy. Or, you know, um, we have, uh, we'll have some baptisms in, in the next couple of months, and, and imagine sitting there going, you know what? I put money in that box. Thanks be to me for those baptisms because I put money in the box. Okay? Blasphemous. So Paul says, I am not going to let you empty me of this boast. Now, what he does, verse 16, he, he, he does not want to be misunderstood, so this is what he says. For if I preach the gospel, this is not my boast. Okay? In other words, he's saying, if I'm out preaching the gospel, that's not what I'm boasting about. I'm not boasting that I'm out proclaiming the gospel. Hey, look at me, I'm a preacher of the gospel. That's not my boast. Paul knows very clearly why that's not his boast. Notice what he says. For a necessity or a compulsion has been laid upon me. Paul said, I can't. What I'm talking about is not me going out and preaching the gospel because the fact is, is that when I go out and preach the gospel, I'm simply doing what I have no choice in. A compulsion, a necessity has been put on me. I can't can't take credit for that and I can't glory in that. 
What is Paul talking about? Well, let's just be clear. When Jesus appears to Saul of Tarsus on the road, does he, does Jesus say, Paul, or Saul, Saul, please open the door of your heart and I'll come in. Is that how it works? Jesus says, Saul, Saul, I'm a gentleman. I always knock. Please open. No. Jesus saves Saul of Tarsus without his permission. (laughs) You know, God doesn't ask people for permission to save them. (laughs) Aren't you glad? Or or, is your head still on upside down thinking, well, you know, I'm actually the one that's in control. Yeah, you keep believing that. God says, you know what? If I'm going to save you, I'm going to save you in my way and in my time, all of grace. And here's Saul of Tarsus. And he knew, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. See, Saul of Tarsus was a Calvinist at the moment of his conversion. There's a simple reason. And that is, he wasn't heading off with, with those warrants in his hands Seeking God. He wasn't saying, you know what? I wonder what's true. I'm just seeking truth. No, he was seeking blood. He's seeking vengeance. He's driven by hatred. Galatians 1. And when God was pleased to reveal his son, In me. God's time. God's way. He doesn't get Paul's permission. Well, guess what? He calls Paul into ministry. By the way, Paul's conversion and Paul's calling are so intertwined that he looks at the... Paul cannot imagine um, his Christian life apart from the call that God gave him when he brought him to himself. And... Just as sure as God didn't need Paul's permission to save him, so he did not need Paul's permission to press him into service to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. You can think of it this way. God shanghaied Paul by sovereign grace. If you watch Bonanza, you know what Shanghai means. Did you ever see the episode where they go to San Francisco? <clears throat> I know George and Carolyn are big Bonanza fans. They go to San Francisco and they all get shanghaied. You remember that episode? There's a, there's a bar on the wharf and there's a trap door and they fall down and then they get shanghaied, right? And what's the point behind being shanghaied? You are, you are coerced by either trickery or coercion or violence to serve in a way that you didn't volunteer for, right? This is what happens to Paul. So when he says these words, a necessity was laid upon me, it's as if he's saying, I'm a slave in this. 
I didn't go and sign up for it. It came to me involuntarily. Right? Which, by the way, is the way grace works. Now, if this sounds uh, familiar to you, you might remember Jeremiah said something similar. Jeremiah, in chapter 20, you have a number of passages that are called the Confessions of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is, um, in a sense, articulating his complaint to God. In chapter 20, he says, he deceived me. So this, this is my paraphrase. You, I, you didn't tell me it was going to be this hard. You didn't tell me this is what this was going to be like. And so I decided I will not speak any more of your word. Remember this? And then he says, but I could not contain it, for it was like fire shut up in my bones. In other words, at the end of the day, I had no choice. I might have thought, Lord, here's my resignation, but God says, I don't have to take it. And in fact, what I can do is I can hem you in and shut you up and close around you in such a way that you do exactly what I tell you to do. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? I mean, would you really like to live life in such a way that God just waits for you to give him permission to do something in you? You'd be old and decrepit and, you know, in heaven before you ever said yes. All right? So then Paul turns around and he says this, powerful words. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. What's woe? Woe is an oracle of doom, of judgment. Paul says, you want to talk about constraint? You want to talk about a necessity being imposed on me in a way that I have no choice? Then here it is. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. In other words, there's nothing else I can do. I can't boast about this. There's nothing else I can do. What powerful words. Paul looked at his life and it was, it was, it was pretty simple. You serve Jesus in exactly the way he's told you to. Period. Period. Woe is me. May, may God judge me if I don't preach the gospel. There's something that's really marvelous about that statement, isn't there? Spurgeon has a fantastic sermon on this text. In fact, Spurgeon used this text a lot. Charles Bridges, in his uh, classic book on the call to the ministry or the Christian ministry, he says this. He says, the apostle strongly marks a constraining desire as a primary ministerial qualification, something far beyond the general Christian desire to promote the glory of God. 
a special kindling within. Its character, if not in intensity, is like the burning fire shut up in the prophet's bosom and overcoming his determination to go back from the service of his God. This constraint, the idea of this compulsion, this constraint, this, this, this holy, inescapable obligation, this constraint rises above all difficulties, takes pleasure in sacrifices for the work's sake, and quickens to a readiness of mind that, were it not restrained by conscious unfitness and unworthiness, would savor of presumption. In other words, what Bridges is telling us is that for the man who can say, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel, that there is a holy constraint in his heart and his life that compels him to not only make whatever sacrifices are necessary, but to rise above whatever difficulties are in front of him. And in fact, it it is so strong and so compelling that Bridges says, if it weren't for our own sense of our own weakness and our own limitations, it would look like absolute presumption to people. So Paul says, verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. If I enlist, now I I don't think that Paul's actually giving us two different models for ministry, those who enlist and those who are conscripted. Okay, I I think he's actually just by, by... making a contrast for the sake of illustration, he's saying, so if I do this voluntarily, of course, you know, I can say I have a reward. I can receive the remuneration. This is the job that I've chosen. But then he says, but if involuntarily, I've been entrusted with a stewardship or I've been entrusted with a responsibility or I've been entrusted with a commission So what Paul's saying is, I'm a slave of Christ. And I've been given a commission. There's nothing else I can do. Your mission, if you choose to accept it. Where's that from? A mission impossible, it's not in the Bible. <laughs> your mission, if you choose to accept it. God never says, your mission, if you choose to accept it. It's just, your mission, period. Okay? That's it. That's it. And Paul knew it. I'm a slave of Christ. There's no, if you choose to accept it. It's just, this is what I am. This is what I am called to do. This is your mission, Period. And so then in verse 18, he says this. Therefore, what is my reward? So if I have no choice in the matter, if I'm, if I am, if I'm conscripted into this service, if I am, have this necessity laid on me, what, what possibly could even be my reward in all of this? Now, by the way, Paul is not complaining about this at all. He's not saying, he's not all grumpy saying, you know what, I really, 
I really wish I could do something else. I mean, I love real estate. I, I, I'd, I'd be a very good Jewish real estate agent. But man, I have no choice in doing this. And so how can I even get a reward if, if this is what I'm doing and have no choice? And that's not what Paul's doing. Paul is absolutely delighted to be doing what God had called and equipped and constrained him to do. Spurgeon says in lectures to his students, these young pastoral candidates, brethren, if there's anything else you would rather do, then do it. Do not enter a pulpit if there's anything else you'd rather do. Only on rare occasion do I ever think about doing anything else. And then it's just thinking about being a sniper and that is just a fleeting thought. (laughs) Doing a youth conference one time in Michigan and they're like, what would you be if you were to pastor? I was like, I'm a sniper. And um, they thought that was terrible. But anyway, I thought it was funny. Okay, so what are my wages? What are my, what's my remuneration? And then, then Paul says, so you want to know what my reward is? Here's my reward. That while preaching, I can present the gospel without charge. That's reward for me. A gospel of free grace, freely offered, that's reward for me. For the sake of love and for the gospel's sake, doing whatever needs to be done to win as many as possible, that's reward for me. By the way, that very theme is going to then trace out in this next section, okay? talking about how he becomes all things to all men, which is grossly misapplied today. And notice what he says. He says, so that while preaching, I can present the gospel without charge, so as not to make, notice the word, verse 18, so as not to make what? Full use of my rights in the gospel. Paul's already used the word use three times. Here, he adds an intensifying prepositional prefix, so we translate it full use. So it should become fairly obvious why Paul says this and does not just simply say, so as to not make use of my rights in the gospel. By the way, King James and the New King James absolutely miss the significance of the verb itself when they translate it that I abuse not my power in the gospel, or New King James, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. It's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul's saying is, so this is, this is my reward, that I'm able to preach the gospel freely without charge, right? That's my, that's my reward. So as, notice carefully, not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. In other words, Paul's indicating to us that he does make some use. If he made full use, then he wouldn't take anything from anybody. 
But he takes, by the way, in 2 Corinthians, he'll use this to, to shame the Corinthians. He receives support from the poor churches of Macedonia while ministering to the Corinthians. The poor people were supporting me, so I didn't have to take any of your money, Corinthians. Rich, fat Corinthians. He says to the Philippians, right? He thanks them for the gift, chapter 4, that they gave to him, which was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And he gives thanks, not for my sake, but for yours, because of the blessing you get from giving. That's what Paul says. So he says, I don't make full use. So in other words, I do make some use, but not full or complete use. Now, uh, let's see. We only have like one minute. Let me just make a few quick notes about tent making, all right? You know what I mean by tent making, right? It's a bivocational ministry. People that are, are devoted to doing a, 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 a job that is outside of the ministry, do, alongside of the ministry, okay? So tent making, of course, comes from what Paul does in Corinth because he makes tents to support himself until Priscilla and Aquila get there. So then, no. So tent making sometimes is a necessity in closed countries. Countries that will not allow missionaries in, tent making is oftentimes a necessity if somebody's going to get into that country. So a particular missionary that we support in a particular country that's closed works for a particular person in a particular state selling a particular good. And that's what he does in the country about five to ten hours a week. The rest of his time is devoted to the work of the ministry. So the tent making is sometimes a necessity for closed countries in order to have an avenue to get into the closed country. Number two, sometimes it is a temporary necessity in church planting or pastoring small churches. And so, in other words, in church planting or pastoring small churches it is very possible that there are times where the church is not able to give full support to somebody in the work of the ministry. And so, when we came here and started Grace Community Church, I worked for, and I was thankful for this, I worked for uh, Sierra Community Church up at South Lake Tahoe, right? And they paid me for like 20 hours a week or something like that. And so, now, I say temporary because in the case of smaller churches, larger churches that are able to help should try to relieve pastors. For instance, we support Pastor Ryan Washburn up in Modoc County. They've got about 40 people. They're all ranchers. Okay, Wonderful. Ryan's been here. He'll be here with, for Joel Beakey. Uh, I'll be preaching for him next week. Okay. Wonderful man of God, and there's no way that that little church could support him to do what he does. And so other churches help support him so that he doesn't have to divide his time. Okay. 
But there are times where that is, is a temporary necessity. Paul, number three, Paul was a tent maker until support or supporters arrived. Then he gave up, then he gave it up to devote himself full time. In other words, he didn't look at tent making as, as a ministry model. He looked at it as a necessity. Okay? The reason I say this is because there's a big push to see this as a model where you have people that are splitting their time when they don't have to. And for the sake of me, I don't know why. If your compulsion is to preach the gospel and serve the church of God. Number four, full-time support is, is defended not only in this passage, as Paul does, but other passages like 1 Timothy 5.17. Don Carson actually makes a great statement, though, in, uh, in his book, When Jesus Confronts the World. He says this, The church does not pay its ministers. Rather, it provides them with resources so they're able to serve freely. Okay. So, we live in a day... Why is, this, why is this passage so important? We live in a day where there are hucksters everywhere. Okay? Besides sexual scandal, what else do we see that is so unbelievably distasteful to us in ministry at large out there? Money. Everything's about money. By the way, this has a long, terrible tradition in, in the Christian church. This is not just uh, a phenomenon since televangelists came about, but televangelists have exasperated it. All right? Paul could say, we are not like many who peddle the gospel. But from sincerity, we preach in the sight of God. And so as we read a passage like this, we have to realize the the, the crux, the heart of what Paul is, is doing is Paul is presenting to us a ministry that is compelled for the sake of love and the glory of God, not money. Now, I hope you appreciate this. How many offerings have we ever taken at Grace Community Church? (laughs) All right, so I'm over time, but I'm going to tell you a quick story. So years and years ago, we started the church, and a guy, Charlie will know the guy, so the guy will remain nameless because this isn't a flattering story about the guy. So... The guy comes to assess what we're doing, and he sees we're at the middle school down, Carson Valley Middle School, and there's, a, there's this old rickety table, and it's got an offering box on it, and the guy comes, and he says, that is a bad idea. You got to pass the plate. When you pass the plate, people feel compelled to give. And I said, mm, well, no. It's going to affect. Have you, have you passed the plate? I said, yeah, the first four weeks. Then we stopped. Put the box back there. You've noticed the difference, haven't you? 
I said, yeah, there's not nearly as much change. <laughs> you, you might also notice, and again, <laughs> all right, if this sounds like a boast, it probably is. But you might notice that we don't even usually say there are offering boxes in the back. How many times have you heard us say? Twice a year? When Vic says, you know, we should probably tell people there are offering boxes in the back so they know what those things are attached to the wall. And you know what? God's provided for 24 years. God's provided. God provides for his, his work. Unbelievably so. Unbelievably so. And so, what we, what we need is not people talking about money all the time. It's not wrong to talk about money. Bible talks about money, right? And there are different ways, right? So, you had George Mueller. How often did George Mueller tell anybody he had needs for his orphanage? Zero, right? What did he do? He told God, pray about it, right? <laughs> okay, so, hey, great, excellent. And guess what? God provided in miraculous ways. D.L. Moody, you know what? He had a different approach. He'd sit down, he'd say, Ray, let's have lunch. You know, we have students that have needs. And I know you've got the big bucks, so write a check. Right? That's what Moody did. And there's a lot of people in between, right? So Mueller had a gift for faith. Trusting God, it's not wrong to talk about money, but the fact is, is that any ministry that's driven by money is not focused on the right thing. Period. And so what this passage does is this passage, in a sense, what it does is it it shows us that what the church needs more than anything else is not really good fundraisers. What the church needs more than anything else is men who have a sense of necessity put on them who can turn around and say, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. If you don't let me preach, I'm going to explode. Jason can tell you this is absolutely true, right? How many times, hey, why don't you take a Sunday off? Or why don't you, why don't you take more time off? Or why don't you, why don't you do, you know, uh, take a sabbatical? Okay, good. Then that way I can preach in other places. Why don't you try resting? That is rest for me. Why? Because I'm like Elihu. I'm like a, I'm like a wine skin that's got wine in it that's just, that's just fermenting. And if, if, if you don't let it out, it's just going to explode. Why? Because the gospel is glorious. And Christ is glorious. And how can you not talk about the glories and the, the magnificence of God's word and be excited about it and just, this is what I was made for. This is what I was called to do. It's put in, it's put in when, when you have somebody that can say 1 Corinthians 9.16, there is something that God wires in their DNA. 
And so Spurgeon, I'll close with Spurgeon's words since, believe me, I could go on. Spurgeon says this, if a man be truly called of God to the ministry, I will defy him to withhold himself from it. A man who has really within him the inspiration of the Holy Ghost calling him to preach cannot help it. He must preach as fire within the bones so that influence will be until it blazes forth. Friends may check him. Foes may criticize him. Despisers sneer at him. But the man is indomitable. He must preach if he has the call of heaven. And the people of God shouldn't settle for anything less. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Paul and his example to us and the scripture that he's given to us by inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And Thank you for this text. And Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel. We thank you that, that it comes to us freely, without money, without cost. And Father, we pray that we would delight to turn around and give it freely. Freely we've received, freely let us give. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you afresh tonight. We pray that you would put that holy compulsion within us to share that good news with those around us who are perishing Father, we thank you. We thank you that when you saved us, you didn't ask our permission. You did what needed to be done. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.